You're listening to the Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest podcast presented by Red Flag Canberra, Mental Health Action, and this is my Brave Australia, dedicated to breaking stigma one story at a time. I'm Jane Grace from Red Flag Canberra. And I'm Tim Daly from This Is My Brave Australia, and you're listening to Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest. Our guest today is Lisa Westgate. Over a decade as a paramedic, Lisa experienced PTSD, anxiety and depression, which prematurely ended her career. Lisa's recovery and subsequent uh, post-traumatic growth has profoundly changed her life. Um, I'm glad to say for the better. Lisa founded the Freedom Mindset Training in 2018, and she shares her expertise in areas of mental health, self-care, and new I knew I was going to stumble on that. Neurolinguistic <laughs> programming, both live and online. She is also a regular guest presenter and has a successful working relationship with Victoria Police as a community encounters volunteer and other organisations particularly related to her passion for frontline mental health care. Lisa is a contributing author in the Amazon number one bestseller, Changemakers IWD edition. Uh, Changemakers and her ebook Three Keys to Outgrow Trauma, an alternative perspective from lived experience, are available via her website, lisawestgate.com. Welcome, Lisa. Wow, that sounds so impressive when you say it all out loud. Thank you, Tim and Jane. Thank you for having me. Yeah, when you say it all in a row. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's right, yes. Explain yourself in 120 words or less. Yeah, 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 it's like that, isn't it? But it's important for us because we obviously want people who are listening to get an idea of people's background. And we're all about lived experience too. So um, if people can understand where you're coming from, it's even better, isn't it? So Lisa, should yes. we start right at the start and your years as a paramedic? Was that something that you always wanted to do and did you go directly into being a paramedic or did you go via being an ambulance officer? Uh, so the, the term ambulance officer kind of isn't really used in Victoria. We just have paramedics. Um, ambulance officer is kind of an old term. I think some of the other states, Western Australia, might still use it. Um I have not done anything directly in my life, Jane. I always go the long way around pretty much for everything, I think. Um, and my career was no different. So I left school having no idea really what I wanted to do. I knew it was something medical and I was interested in the body. Um, but that was about as um, specific as I got. Uh, I travelled overseas for... Um, a year after school, had a gap year like many do, and then came back and uh, it still took me over another 12 months to find myself in the paramedics course that I um, ended up doing. And even then, it was uh, three or four years on paper, I think, and I took six to do it. So I still did it the long way even once I was in there. And is it very competitive to get into the paramedics course? Look, it's quite different now to 100 years ago when I did it. Um, in Victoria, there was a change in the way that paramedics were educated. So it used to be like an apprenticeship, a sort of on-the-job training where you would get employed and learn on the job from the old guys and you kind of uh, learnt as you went along. Um, then they introduced a more um, structured um, university-type schooling, so they had their own training college. Um, and then the year before I started at university was the first year that there was a essentially an undergraduate uh, paramedic program. So I was only the second year to ever go through that program at Victoria University. And the year that I went through, I think we had about 32 students in the year. Now... Victoria University every year has, I think, around 300 paramedic students wow. in each year level. So it's way more competitive than it was back in my day. We were doing our work on um, on massage tables from the, the osteopaths and the, the pencil would push through because it was a padded table. 
now they're in um, giant lecture theatres and it's all, um, yeah, it's all changed dramatically over, uh, oh, I probably shouldn't say how long, you know, nearly two decades. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving it away there. That's right. Yeah. So when you were being taught the the sort of medical side and the an, an anatomical side, was there also education at the same time around dealing with crises? Like, how where did the crisis management angle of your training come in? Uh, well, like I said, I was, I was back in the very baby days of these programs, and every single year, I think at least for the first. Uh, five years, if not longer, that course was a different course every year it ran. They they were changing it on the fly and developing it as they went. We did have a, a element of reflective practice. So we were encouraged, uh, we were actually, we had to keep a reflective journal and we had um, tasks allocated to us to write into it, you know, how are you, um, how do you feel that you would handle certain experiences and that was about the extent of any talk about our own um, mental health. Um, There was mental health elements to the course but I think the focus has always been in those fields how to deal with that in a a patient as in how to clinically manage a mental health situation, not so much of a focus as... um, the practitioner's own mental health, if oh, that makes sense. interesting. And so with the cases that you were going to, were they mainly car crashes? Uh, did you ever go to murder scenes, that kind of thing? What kind of um, traumas, I guess, were you exposed to? Yeah, it really varied depending on the location. So the type of jobs you can go to... Um, seem to be related. There's a clear difference in different parts of Victoria. So I initially did my first uh, nearly six years, five, six years in regional Victoria, where obviously you've got higher speed limits, you've got big, long, straight roads, you know, people were going um, up to 110 and and often uh, faster in their car. Um, So you're more likely to have a high speed... um, you know, very um, huge impact type crash out in the rural roads as opposed to where you can achieve a top speed of sort of, you know, 16, 17 in Metro Melbourne. So I definitely went to some big crashes. We had to, uh, you know, call in the helicopter and get people helicoptered to Melbourne and all those sorts of dramas that you, you see on the telly. Um, I then moved through a regional town um, where I did go to two murders and one of the one of those incidents ended up being one of the uh, I would say the key traumas in relation to the development of my PTSD which was a murder suicide. It had been your career for 10 years so obviously you were enjoying your job and you were getting fulfillment and um, progression out of your job. What happened to turn it round? When did you first notice that something was going astray? I think it's important to note that I was the last one to my own party, Tim. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we I, all are. <laughs> yeah, I, I came out of the PTSD closet and everyone around me went, uh, yeah, <laughs> no surprise, you've been horrible to live with for two years. Um, so everyone else knew that I was having mental health struggles before I realised that. I think it's important to recognise that often we don't have that level of insight into our into our own state. Um, I was certainly focused on just doing what I needed to do. At the time, I was the major breadwinner for our family. Um, I had not long um, returned from work after maternity leave. Uh, after marrying my husband and uh, becoming mother to his two children, stepmom to his two kids, um, and then I had one of my own. So, you know, it was a busy time in terms of the family dynamic, and I didn't really feel like I had a choice to not go to work when I didn't feel like it. <laughs> that didn't seem like an option. Um, so I really realised, I knew I was getting annoyed, I was getting very angry, Um, at everyone all the time at work and at home and at the supermarket and in the car 
and everywhere. Um, anger was probably my number one PTSD symptom, um, which as a woman, I think, can be particularly confronting. Um, there's sort of a societal expectation that women get teary when they get emotional. You know, we get sad or, or you know, cry at the drop of a hat. When in fact I was punching walls and, and you know, I broke bones in my hand hitting the pantry door. I was screaming at, you know, my stepkids for just, you know, stuff that just didn't require that level of response. Um, and I think it's particularly tricky as a woman to navigate that level of rage and fury that's normally associated with very aggressive, typically, in inverted commas, male behaviours, that I think is another element to it. Um, so I didn't really realise it had become um, the problem that it had until it was taken out of my hands and decisions were made by management to take me off the road. You'd, like I said, you'd been there for 10 years and I assumed that you thought your career would, regardless of what was happening to you, your career would continue. But what happened after that? Yeah, I was in it for life. Like I, I got into paramedics and I fell in love with it. And I, my plan was to retire, you know, like I was going to have my big, heart attack at work at 60, 70 odd um, and get resuscitated by my colleagues. Like that was my, that was my end game. I was like, I'm in this until I fall over. Um, so I had no, no idea that it would all end um, at 34, essentially, was when I got put on a disability pension. And I think having that rug pulled out of you, uh, out from under you, um, having that taken away from you and the career ending not by your own choice, I think, uh, is an element that certainly adds to the stress that comes from um, the mental health issue in the first place. You know, having having all of that disappear, your tribe, your structure, your day-to-day, you know, what do you get up and do every day? Uh, all of that disappeared. So yeah, it was it was a really hard time. Uh, I spent four months on the couch. In answer to what happened next, I spent four months on the couch, wallowing in self pity, and practicing being a victim, and talking about you know the glory days of how great I once was. Um, and I tried that on the story that I got from, I guess the the medical fraternity was that. Um, I had PTSD. Uh, this was something I would have for life. And the best that I could hope for was to take my medication and try and avoid my triggers, which for a domestic PTSD, as in, as opposed to a military PTSD where it's from an overseas deployment, a lot of the triggers are related to that country. So I've got lots of people I know that um, did tours of Afghanistan and things like mountains, sand dunes, hot wind, they can be physical um, triggers for their PTSD. When you are a domestic worker, as in you work in your community, so a police officer or ambulance paramedic, um, the things that are potentially triggers, not my favourite word, um, are like life and the supermarket and your local shopping centre and the road you go down all the time. So you live in the space that is potentially um, going to set off those neurological responses. Um, so I tried that on for four months. I tried on avoiding my triggers and taking my meds and feeling sorry for myself and mourning the loss of my career. And four months was long enough for me to realise that at 34, anticipating living at least another 34 years, I didn't want to spend them on the couch and I made a decision to get off the couch. I have a similar story to yours. The company that I worked for for 16 years, unfortunately, I had to leave because of my own mental health issues and I can fully understand that, like you said, you've got that tribe, you've got that family that you've been working with all that time and Mm. during that time they've been your support as well. And suddenly it's taken away from you. And I was the same as you. I sat around for ages just going, what's happened to me? What's happened to my life? What's happened to my career? 
uh, yes, wallowing in your own pity for a while. Um, so yeah, I, could, I, I understand that part. But my problem was that um, the business that I worked for just did not have a handle on mental health in any way, shape or form. Their um, approach was get this person out of this business as quickly as possible. Um, oh, we have that in common. Yeah, so um, which is also devastating, isn't it? When when you're confronted with something that you've given ten plus years to, suddenly says no, nah, we don't want you anymore. I was very angry for a very long time, and um, my thought process was that the ambulance service exists solely to look after people and. I didn't feel looked after. As one of their people, they didn't look after me. Um, things have dramatically changed in the ambulance service. I do need to say that Ambulance Victoria has drastically shifted their focus um, in terms of mental health strategies and all of that sort of stuff. A lot has changed in the six or so years since I went through my experience. So I don't want to, um, you know, poo on them now, um, but at the time they were really not, there were systems that were not set up to deal with that. Um, the work cover process, I don't know if anyone's been through that. That is very much designed for a physical injury. And I remember being confronted with this paperwork. They said, do you want to put in a work cover claim? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Is that what people do? Yeah, okay. I had no idea. I was in a complete state of overwhelm and decision fatigue. Um, didn't know what I wanted to have for dinner for 18 months, let alone, you know, big, big paperwork type claim decision um, and I remember looking at the piece of paper and one of the first questions was on what date was, did your injury start you know what 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 was the date of the injury and I just stared at it and thought well I um, uh, I, I don't know three years ago you know how do you pinpoint that in a mental health issue like PTSD um, that I thought at the time was primarily from my ambulance career. I'm like, how do you, what start date do you put? With the day one of my job, when I was, you know, I got bullied for the first eight months in my career. Do I start at then? You know, or what, do, what date? And at that point, I realised that that process was not for me at that time. And I, d I didn't go through with, with doing any further paperwork around it. Because my head exploded. I remember putting, well, talking to our work cover company, and um, telling them about a worker that we had who was having mental health problems and that he was taking a lot of time off work and should we put in a claim? And at that time they said, no, don't bother, it's not going to go through. Mental health <laughs> claims are nearly impossible to get through. So, yeah. so my, my thought on that is that, like you've said, things have changed now, but unfortunately there's a cohort of people who've missed out on that improvement in the system. And Absolutely. unfortunately, have still been adversely affected by not getting the help that they needed at the time. And they're still around today. They're the, they're the people who I'd say are the people who fall through, have fallen through the cracks of the system, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I was one of them. You know, I didn't receive a phone call for three years. You know, no, nobody, nobody rang. I dropped off the face of the earth as far as my... My tribe was concerned, my colleagues. And I've done enough human behaviour study now that I understand why. Um, I was very angry at the organisation for a long time, less so at individuals. But I now understand that being able to, for example, if somebody was to ring me and ask me how I was, knowing that you know I was off on mental health, um, that requires that individual to reflect um, a part of themselves to be able to have that conversation, to, to be able to have compassion for me or to empathise with me in my down state, they would have to find something within them that, or at least look for something within them that matched that to some level. They would, it would cause them to reflect on their own mental health. And most people are in uh, push it down, suppress it, just get on with it, I've got to go to work mode. And the idea, the subconscious idea of, I don't, you know, having to actually think about that and confront that within themselves is, is too much. And I think that that's what contributes to people not reaching out 
and making those calls to people that have gone off work for mental health because it, it's too hard for them to to have to look at themselves in that way. It forces them to, to look in that mirror and that, that's really challenging. So I don't blame them at all as individuals for, for not doing that, but at the time I was very upset that I didn't feel very supportive for my ex-employer. Well, it's just a, it's an example of stigma, isn't it? Yeah, I. I it, it's I, something they it, that people didn't understand or not educated about. So rather than do anything about it, they did nothing. And um, I, I mean, you could still call that stigma. It's not intentional stigma. It just if you had a broken leg, they'd know what to do. But because of PTSD or depression or anxiety, people just freeze up and go, "I have no idea what to do. How do I handle this?" I know how yeah. to handle this. We just we just get it out of the way. Yeah, well, you just ignore it because that's what I've been doing for 10 years, so I'm just going to keep doing that. You're listening to the Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest podcast presented by Red Flag Canberra, and this is my brave Australia. So, Lisa, how do you, how do you think you might have not developed PTSD if you'd been treated in a different way by your employer. What things do you think would have staved that off or meant that it didn't happen for you? Great question, Jane. Love it. Um, I will tell you what I speak to the recruits at the Victoria Police Academy, which is that there are some key understandings to have about yourself and the work that you're about to go into as an emergency service worker that I believe would have assisted my mental health through my career and potentially, you know, had a a, a dip in a pothole rather than falling down the well um, or certainly uh, enabled me to have a longevity in my career that I that I wanted that I didn't get. Those key elements are, are number one, understanding the difference between your role and your identity. So Ah. what I tell these recruits is your role is what you do when you put that uniform on. In this case, we're talking about uniform services, but it applies to anything, whatever your work clothes are, right? So your role is what you do when you wear those clothes, when you're on shift. Your identity is so much more than that. Your identity is your role plus your relationship with your partner. You're a parent. You're a basketballer. You're a gym junkie. You're a video game person. You're a, a, an avid reader. You're a marathon runner. You're a whatever else it is you do in your life, right? Hiking, camping, fishing, fitness, sport, um, your interests, um, hobbies, your relationship to the other people around you, your son or a daughter, a brother, a sister, all of those elements that make up who you are as an individual is your identity and your role, what you do when you're wearing work clothes, is one part of that. But they're not the same thing. So number one, that's really important to understand the difference. And when you're not at work, be 100% those other things. Number two is to switch off deliberately switch off because to switch on when you're at work so obviously we want uh, our doctors our nurses our carers our you know I want my IT professional it doesn't matter what it is when you're at work we we want you to be switched on at work we want you to be you know alert and focused I don't want you thinking about the shopping list I want you to be focused on what you're doing uh, especially if it's an emergency service type role um, or a healthcare worker which are very important right at the moment as always So to switch on when you're at work, it is crucial that you switch off when you're not at work. And so many people in in those roles uh, are, you know, I'm a cop in or out of uniform. I'm a doctor whether I'm at work or not. You know, it becomes who they are and that's confusing that role versus identity again. But it also means that they're not switching off. And if you don't switch off properly, i.e., take your focus away from those activities and focus on a different activity. So whatever I mentioned before, cooking, hiking, whatever it is, be 100% in those activities, 
allowing yourself to switch off so that when you do go back to work, you're switched on, everything's, you know, alert and you're focused and you can do the job to the best of your ability. I did have one other question too that we're hearing about more. I don't know whether you experienced it 10 years ago, but these assaults and attacks on paramedics, was that a feature of your work life or is that something that you're seeing oh, yeah. is escalating more lately? Um, no, that's a pretty standard part of the job. I think it's certainly not something... I think the profile of it has become um, greater, but it's not something new. Um, back in, when I was still in the job, I, uh, that's when ICE came in and people were talking a lot about the effects of, of, of ICE methamphetamine use. Um, but the statistics and the evidence and anecdotally, I think everyone will agree that alcohol is still Australia's number one drug problem. Um, and most of the assault, the abuse, uh, all of that that I encountered, it was almost all alcohol related. Wow. So would you, um, you, you mentioned earlier in our questions that you were on a murder scene which left you very much affected. How would you compare the effects of that to the physical vulnerability that you had on the streets with people who were alcohol affected? Like, can is there a way that you can distinguish between which one affected you more or deeper? Um, hmm, I'm not really given a, a lot of thought, to be honest. Look, I think... Often PTSD through a, a career um, is not necessarily one incident or three incidents or four incidents. It's certainly a cumulative um, effect. It's a build-up of lots of little things. Um, I, I would argue that um, my years in non-emergency patient transport before I started in emergency ambulance as a paramedic, uh, so it's a it's a it's a typical career transition. Is people will go from the non-emergency side, taking people to appointments and that sort of stuff, and then move into the emergency role, particularly with 300 paramedic students a year. Um, not everyone gets a job straight up. So those years in the non-emergency sector, I spent a lot of time going in and out of nursing homes. Now. Nursing homes do an amazing job. I've got family members in them. But the reality is when you are surrounding yourself with the sick, the dying and the dead, you get a warped perspective on your own mortality. You get a warped perspective on the mortality of your family and friends. You know, most people live their whole lives not really thinking about death until someone close to them dies. Um, we are confronted even in that non-emergency role with the reality of mortality uh, on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And I think that has a, a, a contributes to that cumulative effect of PTSD. So as much as, yes, I went to, you know, suicides and hangings and, and murders and, and assault, and I was assaulted, and, you know, there were some big, I guess, you know, all saints-type stuff that happened, um, I, I'm hesitant... I'm, I'm reticent, in fact, to, to measure one against the other, I suppose. It's a, bit I like, that... it's a bit like asking you what date did your injury occur? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and look, it was only in the unpacking of my PTSD, so as I started um, pulling it apart and, and, and getting to the bottom of it and working out what was going on with me and through that healing process that I discovered... Um, that it wasn't just my ambulance career that had contributed to my PTSD. It was stuff that happened well before I was ever a paramedic had also contributed to the state that I found myself in um, at the start, uh, end of 2013. You're listening to the Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest podcast presented by Red Flag Canberra and this is my brave Australia. We've delved into your past. Let's move forward. Presently, you haven't shifted too far from your previous caring roles. 
And your activities now revolve around supporting those with mental health issues, particularly PTSD, and especially with your freedom mindset training. So tell us about what you're doing now. Yeah, I often see things on social media that says, who cares for the carers? And I always put a little um, hands up emoji, like, that's me. <laughs> that's my <laughs> job now. I care for the carers. Um, yeah, look, I went through an 18-month healing journey. I uh, learned how to be a coach. I went and did my neuro-linguistic programming, which certainly is a mouthful, um, and, uh, and went as far as you can in, in that study, uh, essentially. Um, all of that helped me recover. All of that helped me get to a point where I realized that if I wanted control over my life again, away from the labels, away from the doctors, away from all the things that were not making me feel very good, then I had to take that control back and I had to make choices about my life because it was my life, not their life. And I actually had that control as, as long as I accepted it. I had to claim it. I had to reclaim that. And from there, I could make change because that's an empowered position. When you realize that you have choice over your own life, from there you can make powerful changes. So I went through that process and I came out the other side about 18 months later, uh, medication-free, symptom-free, PTSD-free. And I looked at, now what do I do? What do I, what do, I do with this? I have all this information. I have all this knowledge. Well, lots of people use NLP to help salespeople in different industries um, sell more things and make more commission and... Uh, they use it to enhance communication in corporate structures. None of that was my background. None of that was my interest. And so I really felt I had no choice but to go back to my former colleagues, my former emergency services colleagues, and offer them an alternative because I knew that there were so many people in the position that I had been in only a couple of years before, sitting on the couch, trying to work out where their life went. So I um, decided that I was going to utilise all my learning and co go back to those types of roles and support them in their mental health. And that's really, uh, that has evolved and grown over the last five years or so. Um, so, yeah, as you said in the bio, I run trainings. Uh, obviously, we're not live training at the moment. Hopefully that'll be back before the end of the year. Um, the uh, the program at Victoria Police Academy, unfortunately, is also currently suspended because we can't all be in the same room as each other. Um, but as soon as possible, I'm sure that'll be back up and running. So I do a lot of public speaking. I, um, I speak at um, training events for emergency service workers, uh, particularly police. They seem to be resonating really well with my uh, particular perspective on all of this. Um, I do also, um, currently I've I, I pivoted, we've, we've all got to make adjustments and changes, so I'm also currently running a 12-week online personal uh, development program called Level Up in Lockdown, so that's where most of my time is spent at the moment, recording videos uh, so that my um, students can uh, watch those and get the best out of that. Uh, and I may also be working on some special projects, which really I should be knuckling down and getting done. <laughs> One of those is writing another book. So. Yeah, that's the hard thing, isn't it? Suddenly when you're given a lot of time to do things, you go... Well, I can't make up my mind which one I want to do. So I want to do all of them. <laughs> yeah, so do I. That's the problem. Is, but I have to start one of them at least. So yeah, We're living through... People are calling them unprecedented times. They're not. They're just something different that we haven't yeah. dealt with for a long time. And you were talking about those frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, the paramedics, and talking about being able to shut off. But... During this time, they're at the front line and not being given an opportunity to shut off, are they? Well, I suppose it, it just reinforces the requirement for that. You know, as soon as you your shift ends, you know, I understand people are working long shifts. My uh, father is, uh, and and my uncle are both uh, doctors, 
uh, on the front line working in emergency departments and ICUs at the moment. So as soon as as your shift ends and you get to come home and you, you, you know, they're getting changed at work because they're wearing PPE and stuff like that, do those little things that are very important. So strip off those work clothes, get in the shower, you know, if you're particularly woo-woo, you might want to imagine a white light, you know, washing over you with the water. Just wash all of that down the drain and do some sort of grounding exercise. So there's some really simple grounding exercises um, available. If anybody wants one, they can, you know, let me know. Basically, you, you, you just notice your feet on the ground. Notice the space you're in. Notice the warm water. Oh, this is why the shower is such a good place for this because it's so... Uh, physical so you know notice the temperature of the water on your skin and just really um, bring your mind's focus to where you are right in that moment and then when you you know put on your comfy trackies head out to the living room and be with your family you know as in take your mind's focus and be with your family and allow yourself to switch off because they need you but also you need that time to disengage your mind from what you've left at work. It'll be there tomorrow or whenever your next shift is. It'll absolutely be there. It's not going anywhere for a little while. It'll be there. You're not missing anything. So just be present as much as possible to give yourself that, you know, quiet brain time, I think is really crucial, particularly if you've only got um, smaller snippets of time to be able to do that. You mentioned that you've got children, so are they all at home at the moment? I have um, a 20-year-old at home because she's in the retail industry, so she's currently not working. I have a son that's 18 in a construction-associated role, so he's still working, which is great. Uh, And I have an 8-year-old who has started homeschooling today. <laughs> How's that going? Looks <laughs> uh, well, so far so good. We haven't um, throttled each other Bart Simpson style. So, um, no, he, he's great. And we talk a lot about adapting and just being adaptable and flexible and doing the best you can and being respectful of each other and, you know, putting in the effort. And that's really all you can do, you know, as long as you're not being deliberately nasty and you're giving it a red-hot crack. Um, I'm pretty happy with him. He, he's astounding. He's been home since uh, almost a month now anyway. So we're, we're, we're doing all right. It is, it is certainly challenging times for people and um, particularly if you're not used to working from home yourself and now you've got that plus kids at home, just give yourself a break, like a mental break. Understand that you don't have to... Everybody I have ever spoken to in, you know, a, a public speaking role, everyone has got their undies on the inside. <laughs> I, I have never actually met a, a, you know, cartoon superhero. We're all human beings. We're all just doing our best. So I understand you don't have to do it all, all the time. You know, just stretch if you like. I'm doing things with my hands. Him and Jane, I'm always talking phones. So just stretch your your expectations of yourself in terms of how long is that going to take me to do? Just double it. All right. You know, are we going to get through reading and spelling tests and math thing, you know, everything today? Maybe not. Maybe we'll get through one day's academic content over two days. Well, so be it. You know, just loosen loosen the box a little bit, you know, just let it relax a little bit. Understand that if you do your best and you get as much done as you can, if we all come out of this, hopefully, you know, before, I don't know, spring, um, and, you know, we're all still alive and we all still love each other, then job well done, I reckon. You're listening to the Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest podcast presented by Red Flag Canberra, and this is my brave Australia. So we're going to sort of veer off the course of just what we were talking about. Still about you, though. Um, I noticed in your bio that you spent some time kibbutzing in Israel early on. 
I did. <laughs> that was part of my gap year after school. I'm You've been like... stalking my LinkedIn profile, Tim. Yeah, it was. That's exactly where I got that from. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to find out. A li- there wasn't enough because you sent me a bio, but there wasn't enough personal stuff in it. So I wanted to dig a little uh, bit more. So um, that's all right. I'm always fascinated about people going kibbutzing because it's that to, to to people who haven't done it or haven't been there, it seems that ultimate life, doesn't it? To be free and be out there uh, as a community working together for something. Yeah, for some of us, it's a very, it's very aspirational. It's very uh, sort of utopian in in its portrayal. I think sometimes, unfortunately, there's not a lot of true kibbutzim left in Israel. Um, people, uh, you know, capitalism and everybody wanting their own stuff has has even permeated that um, that old tradition. And they still have communal living, but it's a lot more independent. Um, in what they call a moshav, which is similar but not quite the same as a kibbutz in terms of it's not the, I guess, the socialist ideal that is a kibbutz. Um, Look, it was an incredible experience. I spent a year in Israel, 10 months, um, and for about four months of that, I did spend on kibbutz. 99% of that experience was wonderful. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I was there for, for at least two months of that, four months, um, which is, which is uh, perfect for my personality type. Um, and I, I really, I loved it. I had community, I had family, I had, I had tribe, I had purpose, I had a job, I worked in a sticky tape factory. I think it always amuses to think about the roles that you do overseas, whether you've done... Um, you know, backpacking through Europe or, or, you know, cleaning up dirty glasses in pubs in London. You know, you do jobs overseas that you just would never do here. <laughs> I would never, I can't imagine myself applying for a job at a city factory in Melbourne. Um, but I was very happy doing that um, on kibbutz in Israel. Um, the 1% that wasn't great was my, my first sexual assault occurred on kibbutz. Um, and I've, I've redefined that now to be the 1%, um, as in the rest of the year was great and then this little thing happens. Um, but at the time and in the sort of five to ten years after, that was a pretty big defining moment of that year for me. But over the years, I've redefined it so that it has less and less impact on my recollections of my time overseas. So you haven't let it define you overall? Well, this is really the, the focus of the work I do. So I, I can't work with, you know, when I work with people, let's say I work with a police officer, you know, who's 30 years in the job and there's something from, you know, 1985 that they still have flashbacks about. I can't change what happened back then, just like I can't change the fact that I was raped on the book, right? It is what it is. It happened. So the circumstances are what they are because that's in the past. When I initially came home from overseas, my the, the beliefs that I created because of that event about myself were things like, I have no value but my physical body. I am a worthless human being. I, et cetera, et cetera, as you can imagine, right? And I made choices in my early 20s in response to those fundamental beliefs that I've created because of that event. So now, through all the work that I've done, the event is the same. Right, I can't change that. What happened on kibbutz happened on kibbutz. I've changed the meaning and the beliefs around that. I now believe that because of that event, I have evidence of my strength. I have evidence of my resilience. I have evidence that you know I can overcome, and that every time I get knocked down on the mat, I will get up again. Sometimes I stay there longer than other times, but I will always get up again. So the event is the same. We change the meaning around the event. And so when I work with the copper who has an issue from 1985, that thing happened then, but what we can change is the meaning around it and that changes the how the memory is stored in the neurology of the brain and that therefore changes the hormonal response that occurs when the memory is remembered. So in PTSD with a flashback or a nightmare, 
when you remember, you recall the event and it's traumatic, you re-experience all the hormonal uh, reoccurrence of, of the trauma. So the heart races, the adrenaline pumps, all that, all that stuff, just like the first time. Once you change the meaning and you change the relationship to the event, the neurology changes, the neurochemicals change. You can think about the event without having the rush of adrenaline, without having that same hormonal response. I really hope I'm explaining that clearly. Yeah. And um, were you able to report the matter and feel believed? No, no, no. I never, I didn't say anything for 18 years. I kept it quiet for 18 years. Was being believed something that was important or was it more man- something that you managed through what no, you've I, just described? I, yeah, look, I, it didn't even occur to me to report it. I I was so, I felt, I was so, it was a lot of uh, self-stigma. I was very ashamed. I felt very dirty. I felt very stupid for letting myself get into the position that I got into. Um, so it was a lot of negative self-talk that kept me held back. Um, the perpetrator found me on Facebook, I think, about 20 years later. and No, less, maybe 15 years later. And sent me a lengthy uh, message on Facebook Messenger, would you believe it? Uh, apologising for his behaviour and how he treated me at the time. We were in, uh, you know, a former relationship at the time, um, and uh, and I chose not to give him any time and never responded because I'm in charge of who my energy goes to, and he doesn't deserve any. So this was a person who, I guess, <clears throat> was pretending to be a friend at some level. Well, we were we were sort of dating in inverted commas. Um, and I was uh, 19 and, um, and, and was a virgin when he met me. And that was the experience of losing my virginity. Right. Was, wow, a very traumatic experience. And being overseas, like was there anyone you could confide in over there or you kept it completely buried? I kept it completely buried and I think for a while I didn't, it took me a long time to accept it as a rape because, you know, did did I say no out loud? You know, you you go through all these mental checklists. Did I say no out loud? Well, I don't know. Well, I was, you know, drunk and, 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 uh, you know, drug affected. Does that mean that it, it, does it count? You know, you sort of go through all these like check boxes of, well, well, if I was in that state, you know, then I couldn't say no, but I couldn't say yes. So is that or is that not sexual assault? You know, and you, I went through this whole checklist process. Um, but it took me a long time. Uh, I was actually getting a tarot reading, believe it or not, um, when it came up. And that was the first time that I, I realised, you know what, the fact that I couldn't say yes and I couldn't say no um, probably means that it was a no. You know, the, the default response is, unless it's a, what do they say? Unless it's an enthusiastic yes, it's a no. Um, but that all of that came a long, long time later. As you so succinctly put it, and we'll probably end on this note, and a lot of our storytellers in our events also say this, I am not my PTSD, I'm not my OCD, <laughs> I am not my schizophrenia. That is just something that I have, but it is not me as a person. And I think that that's a lot of the points that you sound you seem to make with the people that you deal with as well. Yeah, I, I'm very careful about language. Um, so a strong part of obviously the L in NLP is linguistics. So I'm very uh, deliberate in my use of language. I will never say that I suffered PTSD because I didn't suffer. You know, that, that predicates suffering. Um, I will say that I experienced the symptoms of PTSD, um, and and that's about it. I don't I don't own it. You know, if somebody, I think there, there's there's power in language, there's power in words, and you know, a very simple shift can be made by becoming conscious of the words you're using. You know, I am not my PTSD. Well, it's not even my PTSD. All right, PTSD is a label that somebody's given me because I fit the list of things in a DSM book. 
um, by a, a mental health professional. So, you know, it's it's a, to me, I call them labels. It's a label. Someone got a, a, you know, a report. Here's what you're currently experiencing. We've got a label for that. We call that PTSD. Oh, okay. Well, I was experiencing anger and quick to temper and bad sleep and flashbacks. You know, that was my experience. Um, and I now don't. And I think anything that can support people to see a mental health issue, particularly uh, PTSD, anxiety and depression as a transient experience, as in this is what I'm going through right now. Like you have a cold, but you're not, you're not, I am, I am not a cold, right? I am not the flu. Um, it's something that you've got right now. You're experiencing the symptoms of, and at some point you, you won't be. And that's really how I came to recover, I feel, is because I made a decision that I hadn't always had PTSD and I could therefore not have it again. If anybody wants to see or catch up with Lisa, she has a website, which is Lisa Westgate, W-E-S-T-G-A-T-E dot com. She's Lisa Westgate PTSD on Facebook. She's Lisa Westgate on LinkedIn. Also Lisa Westgate on Instagram. And are, are you fine if I give that your email? Yeah, absolutely. And her email is lisa at lisawestgate.com. So easy. Lisa, very easy. <laughs> You've made it easy for everybody. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for, for talking to us today and sharing your story. Not everybody um, likes to share their story, but when somebody with lived experience does, we find that a lot of people out there react and say, um, I can relate to that and there's so many things that I wish I knew about that I know now. So um, I think you, that this discussion will hopefully resonate with, with more people out there. And thank you, Lisa. I think you've opened our eyes to some very different ways of thinking about PTSD and also um, your amazing courage in talking about your sexual assault experience. Uh, very, that is very generous of you to talk about that with us and we really respect that and thank you for that. Oh, thank you both for saying so and, and you're very welcome. Look, I, I do want to make it clear, this has just been my personal journey and my path and, and not everybody's ready to hear everything that I've said. Some people might find some of it confronting and I encourage you to, to sit with that resistance within yourself and work out why is it that you're finding that element of what I've said um, uncomfortable. What is it about that? And, and just sit with that and take some time to get to know yourself. Um, everyone's on their own path. I've never met two people with PTSD the same. Um, we're all individuals. So just find what, what works for you and what feels comfortable for you. And thank you again for the opportunity. It's been wonderful to talk to you both. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. This podcast was presented and produced by Red Flag Canberra. And this is my brave Australia. Thank you for listening.